With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Looking good, looking good, like you know we should. Looking good today. You're listening to the Iron Mike Keenan Podcast. We're the bomb going strong. We can do no wrong. We're looking good today. Welcome to the Iron Mike Keenan Podcast, episode number 11. On the heels five months ago of episode number 10, like a lot of this world, we've been on pause. Scott Morrison, along with the coach, Iron Mike. Uh, Mike, how are you keeping? I'm doing really well. And, uh, of course, like the rest of the world, wondering what's happening and, and certainly uh, trying to, to uh, protect ourselves as well as we can. And uh, it's a strange, strange world we're living in right now, Scott, as you know. Yeah, and thanks as always to the, all the frontline workers, the doctors, the nurses, the medical staff, people who are working in stores and, and doing things to try and make life as, as normal, as safe as possible for, for all of us, our, our gratitude to them. And you've lived in two countries during this. Uh, you're back in Florida. You were up in Ontario for a while. How are things in, in Florida? We hear so many stories about it being a hotspot. Well, it is in the Miami area, but I'm in Key West, which is 125 miles south. I'm closer to Cuba than I am to Miami. And uh, it's been relatively quiet here now. It's flattened out in the Keys and in particular in Key West. Uh, no uh, reported uh, viruses recently in the last couple of days. So it really has flattened out. And at the same time, uh, this little town has become a ghost town because it thrives on tourism. And of course, uh, the tourists aren't uh, arriving here as they once were uh, with the virus. They're staying at home. And, and uh, so there's uh, the economic impact that's uh, very difficult here. At the same time, there's a safety factor, which is good for your, everyone's health. So it's, uh, as we said, challenging times for everyone. And I'm glad you acknowledged uh, the frontline medical people that are really exposed to a certain extent, but doing a super job for everyone. Well, it's great to, to be back doing the podcast. We had a lot of fun with the first 10 episodes. And thanks to uh, uh, Graham Rouston, the publisher and owner of the, the Hockey News, our producer, Stephen Ellis. And, uh, and now we've got an affiliation through the Hockey News with uh, Sports Illustrated. So uh, a bigger stage to be on. And uh, Look forward to that affiliation. Yeah, I think that's a great uh, combination for the hockey news to to uh, partner with Sports Illustrated. As you know, they have a huge platform and and a variety of sport. But uh, uh, Graham was kind enough to ask us to participate on his hockey news platform. Now extended to Sports Illustrated. By the way, Scott, when I was in Canada. Uh, it was a completely different feeling about it, uh, about the virus. The Canadians seem to be a lot more conservative overall than what I've experienced here. So uh, a different uh, mentality for sure. Yeah, no question about that. 
Uh, I should mention that we're going to be doing this once a week as we were previously, but we'll be published on on Sundays and available on the, the Hockey News platform and Sports Illustrated. So every Sunday we'll be coming out in the afternoon and uh, some sad news, uh, Mike, to, to kick off the, the show, the program today. Uh, a friend of both of ours and in, in the hockey world and uh, a guy who played for you during the 87 Canada Cup. We lost a good man uh, and a great player in Dale Howarchuk uh, recently to stum- stomach cancer. Yeah, he had a great battle with, with cancer. And my uh, relationship with Dale went back many years when he was a 14-year-old playing for me as I coached uh, Oshawa Junior B in the Metro Toronto League. Uh, he was the youngest player in the team. He was the best player on the team and probably the most resilient player on the team. He had a great future ahead of him. You could tell when he was 14 years old, we won the Metro Championship and then went on to play Streetsville had a very mature, older group of players, 20, 21-year-old at the time. You could do that in junior. We had the normal young team, and uh, certainly they tried to take advantage of this youngster, but he was resilient, still was our best player, and certainly the best player in that tournament, West Streetsville. So, of course, uh, we go on, and our relationship uh, is headed towards Peterborough and Cornwall. We play for the Memorial Cup in Regina and and uh, we were the favorite but Dale's team beat us I said to him well we completely outplayed you he said Mike we went home with the cup and you didn't so that was another affiliation or, or relationship I had with Dale and of course Canada Cup 87 uh, was the next uh, opportunity I had to coach of a really humble superstar wanted to do anything he could to help the team and that was for, sort of the fabric of the team overall superstars that had to accept different roles and he was a great example for the rest of the group this uh, Dale was getting 100 plus points in, in Winnipeg uh, but when he came to us he said I'll I'll be a checker I'll I'll pil- kill penalties whatever you want me to do Mike I'm all in and he certainly was as he he, he won the most uh, uh, iconic face-off in maybe the history of of hockey and maybe the history of Canadian hockey for sure. And of course, uh, go on and, and they score the big goal, uh, setting up Mario Lemieux from Wayne Gretzky. And uh, I think um, it was an interesting story I can tell about the three of them. I was waiting uh, for Tikhanov to make his line change and he was making a rotation of four uh, lines, one, two, three, four, and out comes their fourth group. And there's only a minute plus in the game. I'm a little bit surprised. so. Our team thought I'd put Mess out or, or, or Sutter because they were both great in the face-up. But I was thinking, he might come out with Larry Onoff in the next shift. I better save Mess. So I call out uh, Wayne, Mario, and Howie. And they all get out there. And Wayne says, I'm not taking the face-off. And Mario says, I'm not taking the face-off. And Dale says, I guess I'm taking the face-off. And, of course, the rest is history. So, uh, I, again, iconic moment in Canadian history and uh, hockey, for sure, a great series uh, and the political implication of the Soviet Union, communism versus capitalism, and the drama involved in all three games, 6-5, 6-5, 6-5. But Dale was a big part of that team. As all the players were, they bought into whatever we wanted them to do, they were prepared to do it. And, of course, uh, we had great results and a great team chemistry as a result. 
Dale had a face-off win, and the Russians would say he had a hook on that play that was impactful as well. He really did, and uh, we we're fortunate he wasn't called. Uh, but it was a little bit, if you don't mind the term, Hudson Bay rules back then. If you look at that game today, there could have been a penalty called for uh, on each shift for either team. So, uh, again, in, in the last uh, few weeks, uh, Dale and I have kept in touch. He reached out to me when I was diagnosed with prostate cancer, and, and we had chatted, and uh, uh, the folks wouldn't know it either, but uh, I worked for Match TV, which is comparable to Sportsnet in Russia. And uh, they, sent, they sent a crew from Moscow to interview me at my cottage, but at the same time, they wanted to interview some other star players from the 87 team. And one of those interviews was with Dale Howardchuk. Uh, Eric Lindros uh, drove down from the Muskokas, and Steve Larmer was another one. Of course, uh, Wayne Gretzky and Mark Messi were amongst the, the people interviewed as well. But uh, they really uh, sought out Dale. Uh, a humble superstar that became famous in Russia because of that face-off. And uh, in the last few weeks, uh, knowing that he had a second battle with stomach cancer, I texted him and said, you've got one more face-off to win, knowing that he was very sick and it was probably unlikely. But his son texted me later and after his death and said how much he appreciated that, that text and my conversations with him. So yes, we lost the uh, a very humble hockey player, a very humble man, and a family man. He loved to be on that farm with the horses and his family. So, And, of course, he became a very good hockey coach, coaching, I think, Barry for over 10 years. So uh, he, he could have been an NHL coach for sure, but he, I think, wanted to stay near the farm and near his family, and, and as a result, he stayed uh, uh, with the Barry Coats. A lot of people thought at some point that he might end up coaching the Winnipeg Jets going back there where he had his great success as a, as a player. In some ways, don't you think Mike, uh, Mike is he's a Hall of Famer, uh, a great player, but he always seemed to be like the Jets themselves in the 80s in the shadow of Gretzky and uh, the Edmonton Oilers. Yeah, and I understand that because I went to Chicago after the Philadelphia coaching uh, stint. And at that time, the Oilers were still a top team. And, and in uh, three of the four years, we went to the final four. And one year, my first year, we played Calgary. They go on to win the Stanley Cup. The next year, we play Edmonton. They go on to win the Stanley Cup. So Dale was in a, in a division uh, that had two super tough teams to, to, to defeat and get out of. So as a result... He wasn't probably as well known as maybe he should have been because uh, he was somewhat isolated in Winnipeg to a certain degree and, and uh, they didn't have the success in the playoffs uh, like Edmonton and lived in the shadow of Edmonton and Calgary. But uh, certainly uh, he was the face of the franchise, uh, having some great coaches there. Tom Watt coached him a, in his initial year, of course, fiery uh, um, GM and, and uh, they, they, uh, Ferguson was all fired up with Dale coming there. And one of his great teammates was Serge Savard. And I think he leaned on those 
people a lot in, in the beginning. He was a young player just coming out of junior, but uh, excelled and, and he put Winnipeg on the map. And uh, to your point, they probably pursued him, the coach, but he, he wanted to stay uh, in Barrie and stay near his family. Well, a Hall of Famer on and off the ice and he'll be missed. So we're playing hockey in August and hopefully September. You've had experience of playing hockey, different circumstance, but how tough is it playing hockey in August? Well, it's interesting. Uh, we, we started the Canada Cup training camps in 87-91 in late, late July, uh, early August. And uh, it's interesting because the mentality, and I can tell a little story about the mentality of the players, they're all superstars, as we alluded to earlier, and I'll talk about 87 first of all. And, and uh, they expected that uh, the practices and the training would be a, less, a little bit less rigorous because it was summertime. Uh, some who had played in, in the 84 Canada Cup and, and uh, they thought it was going to be a little bit relaxed. Of course, uh, I really drove them hard when I had them. I didn't uh, confine them in any way. But I said, when you show up for an hour's practice, which is usually at noon hour or later in the day, uh, I want everything out of you for that hour. And, and the, the story goes that they were a little bit disgruntled. And Wayne came up to my, uh, up to my uh, room with Mark and, and Raymond Bork, Mark Messi, Raymond Bork, and uh, said, can you lighten up a bit or lighten the practices up a bit? And I said, guys, I, I want to just clarify <clears throat> something for you and, and, and remind you that all of Canada expects us to win. And the hockey world expects us to win. This is communism and capitalism with undertones of political ramifications. Wayne stood up within 30 seconds and said, sorry, Mike, that we're here. I'll see you tomorrow. We'll do whatever you want. So the rest was history. They complied. And of course, we trained hard, but we were prepared. And, and I anticipated that we'd end up against the Soviet Union. They had such an unbelievable team and they'd been training for 11 months. So the summertime, they thought, and maybe it brings a little bit different mentality, but uh, the results, and it's going to be interesting to watch uh, these players. They, they, they want to compete, yet that emotional response that we receive from the Canadian public as the home team isn't there for any of these teams as the home team. You know, as we discussed, they get down a couple of games, uh, they might be waning in terms of their mental focus, uh, thinking, well, maybe this is really unusual. Maybe it's going to be easier to go home. So there's a big challenge for the players and the coaching staff and everyone involved, the staff of the, of the team, to keep them interested and keep them focused in the dynamics of, of an environment where there's not a lot going on that, that I know of. They're playing ping pong or they're playing uh, you know, different game, maybe pool games. And you alluded one team went out for a golf game, but there's not a much to do. And when you spend that much time with your teammates, you, you can, I can reflect back in 87 when we were, when I was coaching Philadelphia, we played 26 games in 52 nights, but they had the pleasure of going home every night after a game, or at least uh, when we were at home games and, and uh, seeing their families, but this is a different situation. So summertime hockey for them has to be challenging in this environment. Uh, and of course, for a number of reasons, and, and one of them is the, with no fan base. So the emotional level 
has to be driven within themselves, their intrinsic value for competition, and also their team values for competition. Interesting. Yeah. I was just going to say, going back to that 87 story, you mentioned about Gretzky, Messier, and Bork coming to your room, is I'd found out about the players' disgruntlement. A few of them shared it with me, and I'd written the story of how upset they were with you and with a lot of things that were going on at the time. And it was the, uh, it came out on the eve of, uh, you got, you're playing the Czech, Czechoslovakia. And I think it was a semifinal game. And I remember getting back to my, it was in Montreal, I get back to the hotel room and the, the light is flashing on the phone, the message light. And which is never a good sign when you're a reporter on the road. It usually means somebody else has broken a story and the <laughs> office is chasing you down. In this case, I had the story and the phone message was, it was from Alan Eagleson, who was the, organizer of the tournament, the Canada Cup, and of course, Team Canada. And he's screaming on the phone. He says, you got to kill that story. You got to kill that story. He says, if we go out and lose, it's going to be your fault. The whole country is going to be mad at you for publishing that story. Well, if that being, it was Montreal. So you know what time it was when I got back to my room. Yeah. <laughs> so the story was on the street. You were probably at Grumpy's with me that night. but uh, Yeah, I was. <laughs> Well, that was funny, but well, uh, we had or- we had an orchestra to 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 uh, take care of in the evening. Uh, all the reporters, our our listeners and uh, and audience wouldn't know this, but uh, uh, as tough as I was in terms of scrums and 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 uh, our our press conferences, and we'd all go together, all of us, and, and uh, uh, sing along and have sing songs and. Uh, all the reporters and they say, why are you so grumpy uh, in the, in the daytime at the press conferences is because I'm not grumpy at night at grumpies. I'm singing with you guys. So they all started to laugh and I appreciate the fact you didn't break the story, but the truth of the matter was Wayne understood then and stood up and said, guys, we're out of here. We're going to have to do whatever he asks us to do because he's right. So that was, that was a kind of an interesting uh, evening or meeting that didn't last very long, and and superstar players who completely then understand our mission, that was the win. So going back to this, the bubble life, and we've heard people speculate, and you alluded to it that if you get down by, like if you're in a normal playoff series and you lose the first two games on the road, you still feel pretty good about yourself going home because you're going to have a an electric building, you are at home home ice and all of that but that that whole feeling isn't there now no it's not and that's the challenge that's certainly the big challenge for the players themselves to continue to be emotionally invested in the in the idea of winning and of course the coaches to to get them motivated uh, enough to respond and uh, we've seen a couple of examples where they didn't respond and and uh favorite teams in pittsburgh uh uh, they dismissed all their assistant coaches. And, of course, Washington Capitals, they just dismissed their head coach. So uh, two teams that were expected to do much better than they did uh, didn't get the response that maybe they normally would if they were going back and playing in Pittsburgh, playing in Washington, playing in front of their home fans. Uh, a lot more energy in the building, a lot more excitement, um, a lot more dynamics that go on than what we see in this bubble situation. So it's interesting to watch the dynamics of these teams that are remaining. And 
and how this is going to unfold. There's still a lot of hockey to be played, Scott. We're only in the second round. So to win four rounds in this environment, you're going to have to be mentally uh, really, uh, I think, invested and mentally tough to be able to do this and get so, some breaks and stay healthy. When you had your Canada Cup teams, for instance, yes, people could go out to a restaurant, well, to a restaurant, to a, a bar, to a movie. They could get out of the quote-unquote hotel bubble, but they were still in a hotel for a month or so. So how, how creative do you have to be to stop them from getting bored? Well, I, I think that uh, that's a, a good point. They were on the road for over a month. It was almost six weeks. And uh, the, the, we started out with the families that would be with them. And then we dispersed and went on our own. And then we played some preseason games and we traveled to different parts of the, of the country. And one noteworthy was Newfoundland, uh, where there people were waiting in the middle of the night to see Wayne Gretzky get off the plane. Uh, and we had a little bit of variety that way. Uh, we certainly were in some dynamic places like Montreal. We were there for a long time. And uh, uh, that's a hockey-crazed city. Uh, that uh, really, you know, all those players would be recognized. So I think that helps in terms of them uh, uh, being excited about being on the team, being excited about representing their country. Uh, so that kind of feedback, I, I believe, helped them. Uh, and you, you, uh, you asked an interesting question. How did you keep them from getting bored? Well, you know, my coaching style at the time was to keep them on edge so they wouldn't get bored. Uh, whether it was different practices or different dynamics, uh, different change rooms, different dressing rooms, different line mates, um, different uh, styles of play. So it was uh, on and off the ice. You had to keep, keep their attention. And, and uh, I think they understood that. You mentioned some firings that have happened. Uh, of late, recently, a couple assistant coaches in Pittsburgh, the head coach, as you mentioned, in Washington. Given just how different this year is, that you had the long layoff, you come back and have only a couple of play-in games to get ready, and then you have series, no home ice, et cetera, et cetera. Are firings harsh? I mean, they're harsh at the best of times, but is it a little more harsh under these circumstances? It's all based on expectations, Scott. It's what the, what the ownership expected, what the management group expected. And as I said, these are two teams that were touted to be top teams with the expectation because of the personnel that they have on the team, the superstars, uh, their history, um, what they did previously. Uh, that brings about change. And, and unfortunately, uh, the coaches probably are the first uh, people in line to, to have to accept the responsibility or the, 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 the dilemma is pointed to them. So uh, it's not necessarily always fair, never has been, but uh, that's one solution that's always been part of the game. Unfortunately for the coaches and I probably know better than anyone, with the exception of Roger Nielsen. He's the only guy who coached more teams than I did in the NA history of the NHL. So uh, there's a lot of different circumstances. 
uh, a lot of different situations that arise in the inner part of the of the of the club or of the team that public never get to know and maybe we can explain that someday in a book <laughs> uh, I, I thought it was interesting is that during the whole play-in round and the first round and you know Canadians came back they were an outside team looking in when the, the normal season ended, uh, was put on pause rather. Uh, but to come back and Carey Price was Carey Price of all time, just absolutely brilliant. And Mark Bergevin, the general manager, Canadian GM said, one thing he did learn, he says, I've got to upgrade my backup goaltender to make sure this guy gets enough rest. So that rest that he had made him that much sharper when he came back. Well, no question about it. He, he's the backbone of the team. And any great team that I have ever coached, the Stanley Cup teams, uh, the teams that went to the Final Four, the teams that won the President's Trophy, we always had great goaltending. And I've been privileged in my career. I had seven Vezina Trophy winners. That's incredible. And that's the benchmark of how you, first of all, what, what you have to have to be successful in the playoffs. To take a deep run, you need the goaltending. And uh, in my case, it's interesting. I played Grant Fuhr more games than anybody in the history of the, of, of the NHL in one season, but he ended up getting hurt in the Toronto series. And, of course, we lose the series against Detroit in a overtime, double overtime, uh, one nothing defeat uh, with a backup goalie, John Casey, who played really well, but he's not Grant Fuhr. So... Yeah, that rest is important, and, and maybe, maybe if Grant was a little bit more rested, he wouldn't have been hurt. I'm not. It's hard to say because it was, you know, a real heavy contact uh, that he and Nick Kiprios had in the crease. But uh, yes, uh, I played Hextall a lot. I played uh, Lindbergh a lot. Uh, you know, I go on and on. Uh, Mike Richter in New York played play, Kip, Kiprasov. They all want to play. That's the other part of it, though. Uh, they all want to be a part of the solution, and they ask for the ice time. So as a coach, you have to be guarded a little bit to give them a little bit of rest so that they are prepared. One thing I did for Grant when I did play him that much that season, I told him, Grant, don't come to practice. I, I know you love the golf and was getting warmish in St. Louis. And he said, great, Mike, I'll see you tomorrow. I said, okay, see you in game day. <laughs> He would have loved that for sure. Yeah, he did. He went, he went golfing all the time. So watching the games, how has it been for you with an empty arena? I thought the NHL did a super job in terms of presentation with no fans, with covering the seats, uh, the voice in. Uh, you can see, hear some of the sounds of the players, uh, the music being piped in. But it's not quite – they did a super job. Don't get me wrong but it's not the same. It's not the, it can't bring the energy into that environment that they normally are accustomed to. And they, they can revert back to the days they played on ponds with no fans, but they're professionals and they thrive on that energy as well. So it's a little bit different. Uh, it's a little bit, has been a little bit challenging to watch because there's so many games each day. Uh, so, you know, you, you pick and choose a little bit of ones that you, you want to have an eye for and, and watch closely. But I think it's a challenge, a real big challenge for the, for the athletes themselves. But overall, the hockey's been pretty good? 
I think it's been pretty good considering the circumstances. Yes, uh, they're competing, they're fighting, they're bodying each other. Uh, and, and the compete level was pretty high. Uh, I think it would be a little bit higher if there were uh, more energy in the building, but overall they've done a pretty good job. The, 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 uh, the hockey players, have, I think, uh, have represented the game well in, in very difficult times. Uh, one more question for you. When you travel, when you're coaching a team, you get on the road, you're, you're a team by yourself. These guys are in a bubble with four yeah. other teams. How weird would that be to be crossing paths in your hotel? Well, I've already teams heard would never be in the same hotel otherwise. Exactly. I've heard some stories too. Guys having a, a little bit of a tiff on the ice and they get in the elevator together or they're going to have a coffee and they're sitting across the booth with uh, their, their competitors. So it's a, it's a lot different. Uh, there's a cultural change in the game because of it. Uh, there's a respect factor they've always had, but now they got to hang out with the, the other teams, which is completely foreign uh, previously. When we're on the road, we'd be in a different hotel, staying away from the opposition. And, and uh, that was part of the competitive, uh, I, uh, I think, uh, matchup that what was enjoyed then. Now that's difficult to, to understand. If it was the 80s, back in the 80s, yeah. what would it be like within a bubble with four teams? Would there be some brawling going on? Oh, at one time, you, you wouldn't. I used to get upset if they talked to each other in the warm-up. So uh, uh, you, you can recall our, our battles with Montreal and the, the famous bench championing brawl before the game that went on when Hockey Night Canada was uh, coming to air. We were still in the warm-ups fighting. So, uh, yeah, it would be a different culture for sure. But that culture has changed over time as well. Yes. Well, prior to those days when they used to travel, teams would travel on trains together. They had to keep them in separate cars so they didn't cross. Yeah, there's paths. a lot of history about that as well. When they, Toronto and Montreal were back on the trains going back and forth, they had to make sure they kept their, their cars separated. Different times. Well, let's uh, call it, wrap it up for today. It was uh, good to be back, a good session, a good chat. And uh, as I mentioned earlier, that uh, we'll be publishing every Sunday afternoon and doing one episode a week. So I look forward to episode number 12. Likewise, uh, Scott, really enjoyed it coming back to the hockey uh, frontier again after we, we were out for such a long time. But uh, thanks to Graham, the Hockey News and Sports Illustrated that uh, – uh, our discussions maybe can be expanded to a bigger audience and hopefully that we can uh, enjoy, they can enjoy our, our discussions about hockey and about people and about the game. And of course, about uh, the people that are looking after us all. Lots of good stories still to be told. Stay safe, everyone. <laughs> <laughs>